My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford Observer and a military police officer. I've spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who came from humble beginnings in West Virginia to becoming a Green Beret with 10 combat deployments and ending up as the Chief of Business Operations for the National Medal of Honor Museum. In his career, he's conducted numerous operations to include combat search and rescue, counter sniper operations, and special reconnaissance, just to name a few. My guest has spent a life of service to his country, teammates, and his fellow man. He retired from the Army with 26 and a half years of service and now spends his days promoting the legacy of the recipients of the Medal of Honor, an honor that less than 0.01% of service members have ever been recognized for. He's here this week to tell his story. It's my honor to introduce you to Daryl Utt. What's going on, my friend? Hey, what's up, man? Uh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So yeah, I'm I'm so glad you're here. We have a lot to talk about. I usually start with family, but I really want to ask you something. In, in learning about you, reading about you, and talking to you on the phone, the first question I have for you is, what does the word service mean to you? Service. Uh, I think that's a great question. I think it's something that you do that's higher than yourself. You know, it's something that you do to give back to your community, to your family, something you do higher than yourself. Here's the reason I ask you, and I know I put you on the spot and I told you I was going to kind of to jump it off, but I wanted to ask you that because with your service to me, it's more than service. It's selfless service. And the reason I say that is because we've talked about stuff that you have planned in the future. And you've told me when you were getting the story out that, that people thought it was just about you. And you said, that's, it's not about me at all. It's about my team. It's about the people that served around me. Pictures that you've sent me, stories that you've told me about the guys that are in the pictures. Everything that you talk about doesn't revolve around you, which it should because it's your story, but it never does. You always talk about the other guys that are involved. And I think there's a difference between service and selfless service. Selfless service is always putting that other guy ahead of you. And to tell you right off the bat, I think you've always done that in your career and what you've done with me, what you're doing for the Medal of Honor Museum. You always put everyone else first. Can you agree with that? Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm glad the way that uh, the, the way that you worded it sounded definitely a lot better. But but yeah, that that's for sure. I, I try to do that. I you know I came from humble beginnings. I, I'm still that humble humble kid from West Virginia that grew up poor, and uh, my parents didn't even graduate high school. Um, so I feel like I still have that chip on my shoulder. I still carry that. Um, but I but I really you know the, the way that you put it was perfect. Well, let me ask you about those humble beginnings, because you quite candidly tell a lot of people and you say it 
when you say it, you say you say I'm I'm not telling you this lightly. Neither one of my parents graduated from high school. You said they instilled in you hard work, determination, and but I've never heard you explain it as you just did, like with a chip on your shoulder. Um, I I think that's interesting to look at in your career, and I almost wonder now, looking over it, was it that you were trying to impress your parents or impress yourself with what you were doing? Well, I think obviously I was trying to try to make my parents proud, but I think I carried, I carried uh, maybe their burden or they, you know, they got married young, they started having kids and it, you know, life, life started totally different time period, you know, for them. So I think I took that upon myself and I put that chip on my shoulder that I wanted to, to do more things. I wanted to go higher uh, and continue to achieve. And, and I think I just carried that for them. You know, I was proud of them. I don't say that to to be negative toward my parents. You know, obviously, uh, I mean, they're both deceased, but, you know, have a lot of love and respect for my parents. And, you know, they come from a different time period. And I felt like I just, you know, tried to carry that with me. Um, I felt like I had a lot of opportunities. The military, man, they were so good to me. They opened up a lot of doors. They gave me a lot of opportunities and, uh, and I was able to achieve a lot and, and I have a lot of gratitude for, for the way that I grew up. I mean, I grew up hard, grew up poor. Um, but, but I appreciate everything that my parents uh, did for me. You know, my dad spent a lot of time with me and, uh, turned me into a man and sports and hunting, fishing, trapping, We've talked about some of those things before, but, um, you know, my mom was also, she also had a big part. Uh, I think a lot of my mental toughness comes from my mom. Uh, she was a tough, tough woman. You know, my dad uh, drank a lot when he was, when he was younger and that caused a lot of issues. And my mom worked at a, at a mental institution and uh, she would come home often with black eyes or a uh, big busted nose or something like that. So so I, I definitely got a, a lot of toughness from my mom. Um, just, you know, really appreciative, have a lot of gratitude. When you look back on your life growing up, like you said, there was a lot of hunting, trapping, that, that you grew up poor. When you look back as you joined into the military, uh, you finished your college degree, then your master's degree. Did you ever look back and think, man, I never thought that any of this was possible? Like when you started this journey, coming from that humble of beginning, did you ever think that you would end up where you're at? Because let's be honest, now you you rub elbows with some big wigs. Uh, the people that you work with, the people that are associated with the museum. Did you ever think this kid that grew up poor would ever end up as well as you did? No, no, not at all. I mean, I just I just had a meeting late last week. I was in the same room with, with Chris Cassidy, who's our president and CEO, you know, former Navy SEAL, NASA, chief NASA astronaut, very accomplished um, in the same room with Charlotte Jones, who's who's the chairwoman of our board and executive vice president, chief branding officer for the Dallas Cowboys, Reed Cordish from the Cordish Company. Just you're right. Some very, very high level people I have to pinch myself sometimes. But no, I, I never thought that as, as a kid growing up in West Virginia that I would have that type of opportunity because I wasn't a great student. I mean, I was decent, uh, average, 
uh, you know, just good enough to continue to play sports, uh, basically. Stay um, eligible. Yeah, stay eligible. And uh, <laughs> I never I never would have thought, you know, and, and that I will I would like to say this, you know, about the military, I'd like to highlight the military. The military provided me with a lot of opportunities. You know, that's how I got my bachelor's degree. It's how I got my master's degree. I was able to, to transfer my GI Bill uh, over to my son uh, so he could get his degree. And, uh, you know, man, the military was was fantastic to me. They, they took care of me. They, they provided me a lot of opportunities. And, um, you know, here I am today. Uh, and I have a lot um, to thank the military for. Well, I, I wanted to ask you one uh, another thing about your youth. When you looked at it, were you ever angry? Did you grow up in an area where you saw the haves and the have-nots and you thought, I'm going to make better? Or Because you hear a lot of guys, they'll tell you, look, I joined the military to get the hell out of where I was at. I knew that it was a dead end where I was going. Was it ever like that? Were you ever... I don't want to say angry about your childhood because I don't think that was it at all. But did you ever look around and go, there's got to be better out there. I know I can do better. We talked about, did you ever think you would get to the level you're at? But did you also on the opposite end of that ever think like, man, I got to get the hell out of here to, to do better for myself, for my future family, for all that. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that I went, I went around as an angry uh, kid, you know, definitely had, uh, you know, as, as most 17, 18 year old males, you know, you got the testosterone thing going on and, and all of that, you're trying to prove yourself. And, um, uh, I wouldn't say that I probably ran around angry, uh, too much, but I did realize that, you know, I grew up, I was born and raised in Huntington, West Virginia. Um, not a ton of opportunities. You know, my dad worked in a glass factory his whole entire life. And then, you know, you know what happened with glass and plastic, that whole transition that happened way back in the day. So that whole factory got shut down. And um, I, I just knew there there weren't a lot of opportunities. And I knew my parents uh, didn't have the money to send me to college. So um, so the military was an option for me. It was something that that I, you know, that I was interested in that I wanted to do my football coach. I was lucky I had a had a great football coach that that pushed the military because he was, you know, he was National Guard Special Forces. So let's talk about Carl Thornburg for a minute. Uh Sar Major, National Guard. Okay, 19 uh, Special Forces. Uh and you I, I've heard you say before that he was one of the most influential people in your life, which struck me kind of funny because I think of how much you respected your parents, how much you learned from them, but to hear that this football coach was also on that same kind of level. Yeah, he definitely was. He definitely was. I mean, I played high school football. Uh, coach Thornberg was my coach all four years. He started out as an assistant. And then I believe uh, maybe my junior year, uh, he took over as the head coach and, uh, you know, just spent four years four years with the man. And that was pretty much, uh, all year round because, you know, we did weightlifting in the off season. Of course he also was the wrestling coach and I, I didn't wrestle. I kind of regret that looking back, but, uh, but yeah, spent a ton of time with, with coach Thornburg and, uh, he, he took us to weightlifting competitions and, you know, my junior summer 
I think it was my junior summer. He took us up to Camp Dawson in the mountains of West Virginia and, and gave us a taste of the military. But uh, once I had some time in, in service, I realized that he basically ran our football team like a special forces team. So uh, that was pretty cool once I realized what he what he was up to, you know. Didn't realize it at the time because, you know, I was just a young kid. But Do you, well, uh, that's what I was about to say. Do we ever realize until later? No, no, man. You know how it is. You're, plus, you know, a lot of guys are hardheaded and stuff like that. And, and I remember, too, you know, being in high school and it's like, oh, Coach Thunberg, Special Forces. Like, I remember my dad being impressed with that. Like, oh, wow, that's that's awesome. You know, but to me, it was like just kind of far away. I didn't it, it didn't really sink in. But as soon as I entered the military and then I started learning more and more, I was like, oh, wow, what an accomplishment. What a feat, you know? I want to ask you finally about growing up in your family. I want to take those three people, your father, your mother, and the coach. And I want you to give me one thing that each of them you carried into the military, but more than that, carried into your special forces career and beyond into today. Yeah, it's a great question. Interesting question. Uh, like I said earlier, I, I think I got a lot of my mental toughness. Don't quit. Keep fighting. I got that from my mom. I got that mindset from my mom. She's just a very, very tough woman. Um, a lot of the hunting, trapping, fishing, those type of skills, those outdoor skills, those outdoor man type skills. Uh, you know, I learned that from my dad and I would say coach Thornburg, probably there's a combination of, uh, of a ton of things that my mom and dad both gave me, um, that he gave me as well as, as being on the football field and physicality and mental toughness and, and also composure and patience. You know, we made it to the, um, we made it to the finals. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry, not the finals. We made it to the playoffs my senior year, and uh, and we were getting beat. And I think this is a pretty valuable lesson as far as composure and being a man. And you got to be able to take your wins with your losses. And uh, we were getting roughed up there pretty good toward the end, and we had a lot of guys hurt. We were we were up a, against a bigger school and. And we just, you know, we just got outplayed, outperformed, outcoached, you know, out everything. And uh, I was getting a little chirpy there toward the end of the game. And he called me, he, he put in a substitute and sent me out. And he said, hey, man, this is your last football game forever. You don't want to, you don't want to get kicked out of this game. You know, hey, they were the better team. They won the game. We lost the game. You have to be able to accept that. That's life. That's a life lesson. And uh, those are some of the things that, that Coach Thornburg taught me. Well, I wonder where the service thing came in, and that's why I asked the three things. I haven't really heard you say any of that. Do you, do you think that came along later in your life, later in your career, or did you have kind of that feeling right off the bat? Because you went uh, 11 Bravo. You went to the 7th Infantry Division. Uh, so, I mean, you're you're right off the bat. You're You're working in small teams and stuff like that. Did the service come later on to you or was that from the very beginning? Did you pick up that need for service, uh, that, that want and desire to serve kind of your fellow man growing up or did that come later on in the military? Not necessarily when you joined the military. Gotcha. 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 
Yeah, I think I eventually evolved into that. that it, like when I first started, I was such a young, dumb kid. It, you know, the military was more of an adventure and, you know, it's kind of a job, but it didn't really evolve. You know, I, I kind of evolved into that service and wanting to serve. And then it was pretty much on steroids when once I got to special forces and and that environment and that dynamic, the team dynamic. So I, I think my patriotism, all those things kind of evolved uh, gradually over time. Let's talk about big army for you before we go kind of into special forces, because I think the big army part of your career I think it might have drove things later on in your mind or maybe in in the desire of what you wanted to do. But we're talking 90 through 96 was your, you know, kind of big army career. Um, I came in in 94. I did the split option. But around that time, 90 through 94, there was some stuff going on. But I think that you were in some different kind of parts of the military. You had the end of the Cold War. You kind of had that stand down with little pop-offs. And I've talked to a couple of people like that. Um, when you're in that, that time period that you were in, in the beginning in Big Army, was it everything that you thought it was going to be? Or did you have a different expectation in the Army? Because like I said, there were, there were things going on. And you had a couple guys in your unit that I think had been in just cause. But other than that, it's a pretty, I guess you'd say, quiet world at the time for Big Army. Yeah, we felt a little left out, man, to be actually, to be honest with you, you know, because I graduated basic training and AIT, you know, I was down at Fort Benning, Georgia, and I was part of a cohort. It was, I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Have you heard of the cohort program? Yeah, so cohort is when you go in with a group of guys, you do basic AIT, and then you all get stationed at the same unit together, right? Or, or the same division. Yeah, we were, we were all stationed together. So, so, uh, yeah, man, that was kind of a weird, weird setup, but, uh, and, but I and was you missed desert storm, right? Because of, because of how you did. Yeah, we met, we missed uh desert shield, desert storm because we were light infantry and, and they really didn't need light infantry uh, for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But, you know, because we were a cohort unit and, you know, you have all these basic trainees that, you know, just graduated. <laughs> so you got all of these privates that are getting shipped to a unit. Well, then you got- Sounds like a great have, idea. Right, right, right. <laughs> so then you also have to ship over the non-commissioned officers, you know, the, the folks that get stuff done. And uh, we had a lot, and I don't know who came up with this idea, but a lot of our non-commissioned officers that were in charge of us were all like mechanized guys from Germany. And we're light infantry in Fort Ord, California. And we're walking everywhere we go with a rucksack on our back. So, you know, it was a really strange, weird dynamic. But, you know, we weren't needed for Desert Shield, Desert Storm. We had just missed uh, Operation Just Cause. So... Even though we did see some of those combat vets, they weren't in our specific unit because we were all brand new. All of the privates were brand new. All the NCOs were brand new. So it was really kind of a weird setup, man. And uh, we tried to navigate through that as best as we could. And, you know, my initial contract, I was two years at Fort Ord, California. And then I was supposed, our cohort was supposed to ship over to Korea for a year. And I thought that was the great, you know, that, that was great. This is going to be awesome. 
but then they they decided to deactivate the seventh ID light infantry. <laughs> and, oh, oh, this is this is funny. They decided to deactivate the seventh ID light infantry after they spent tons of money on posts like redoing all the roads and doing a bunch of buildings and stuff. I don't know who set that whole. Uh, yeah, because then they up. moved you to Fort Lewis. Yeah, then they moved us to Fort Lewis and <laughs> was up there for a year. So yeah, it was it was kind of a mess, man. To be honest with you. So let's get your initial thoughts on the army, because I know how you feel about them now. But your initial thoughts—you're going through, you're in this cohort. I mean, at least you know the guys that you're going through all this with, and, and you become close, you know, and not split up. But when you look at the army and you you see what you're doing there's got to be like a little disappointment in you especially like when you don't get to go to korea and stuff there's got to be some disappointment floating through you yeah yeah there's a there was definitely some disappointment um but you know what's what's really strange i I felt like i got lucky looking back i got lucky you know um because we didn't have enough team leaders and squad leaders you know ncos non-commissioned officers um i was a team leader from day one like day one i showed up i I had my own team uh which i didn't know what to do with it but i I learned uh quickly to be a team leader uh on the job what rank is that i was an e2 uh and then i got promoted (laughs) i was an e2 team leader and then i made it all the way up uh i ended up being a 20 year old e5 i was a 20 year old sergeant who couldn't even buy beer on post so, uh, so I started out, man, I was, I was fast tracking. I was doing pretty good, but, uh, I definitely did have some disappointment. Um, but once again, it's kind of like, you don't know what you don't know. So then I think probably more of my disappointment came when I, when we shipped up to Fort Lewis and we were right beside second Ranger battalion and I started seeing those cats and I was like, holy cow, man, these guys are on a whole nother level than what, than what we are. They train different. They look different. They dress different. Uh, they're like, you know, superstars. Uh, so then, you know, you kind of, you get a little bit of a complex because you're like, man, we're uh, way down on the food chain here. <laughs> and, and at this time, you know, I still hadn't been exposed to special forces, even though first group, you know, is headquartered right there at Fort Lewis, Washington. But, you know, they're a different part of the post, so we never really got to see them. But we were right beside 2nd Ranger Battalion. So we got to see how good those cats were. Um, and and that was a whole that was where I, I started kind of looking. My eyes got open a little bit like, oh, wow, there's, you know, there's different things out there in this great big army. Uh, maybe there's something for me. Maybe there's something for Daryl out there. So when you looked at that, though, and and you saw like, hey, this could actually happen for me, um, and, and you start kind of putting those pieces in place, you're not an E5 yet, of course. Um, I, I don't think, are you? Well, I, you might have been by the time you got to Lewis, you might have been a 5. Yeah, I was a 5. So when you look at that and you think, okay, l- let's start moving around. What are your thoughts on how to move around? Like you're, you know, you see the Rangers, you see that there's a different kind of world out there. What are your thoughts in order to move? Because had you had, you hadn't had jump school or anything by then, right? No, uh, by this time I had been to air assault school. Okay. I was a combat lifesaver and I had my expert infantry badge. 
Um, so you're not doing bad. Not doing bad. Not doing too bad. Uh, no Rangers, no Ranger tab, no Ranger school. Um, but I, I think probably I made a decision, you know, I was, I ended up getting married and, um, I made a decision to PCS, you know, I reenlisted for Fort Campbell, Kentucky, primarily because it was five hours from home and, and the hunting and fishing, you know, I was still, it, it took, it took several years before I, I got removed kind of from the hunting, fishing, trapping deal. You know, at some point I, I just didn't have time to do that anymore. And, and I kind of lost, lost that hobby hobbies. Uh, but Fort Campbell, Kentucky was so close to home. It was a five hour drive and, uh, they had great hunting and fishing and, um, it's like, wow, I'll, I'll go check out Fort Campbell and, uh, be part of the 101st airborne, even though they're not an airborne unit. Well, they're an air assault no, unit. No, and, no disrespect. And, and they're an air assault unit and you had your air assault wings. So how right. is being married? Uh, rough in the military, as you probably okay. know. So, well, let, uh, let's talk about this marriage that you're talking about now. You get married at Fort Lewis. You uh, sign off. I was off actually married at Fort Ord. Oh, really? So yeah. how long had you been married by the time you go to Campbell? Just a couple of years. Few years. Okay. How is it, though, being married? Is it is it still rough being, you know, young, uh, doing the things that you're doing? And now you kind of have your eye on doing even more. So is it rough? Is it, is it an easy go? How is it? You know, being younger and we weren't really that super, I mean, we still had to go, we spent a lot of time in the field, uh, away, but you know, it was good. Uh, you know, being young, you don't really know, know anything. So, uh, it was, it was more kind of an adventure. It, it kind of defined like how it was for me being in the army in my first couple of years. It's kind of how my, my first marriage was. So, um, it was more of an adventure. We had a good time. So 94, 96, you're at Campbell, 101st, not till 96 is when you attend assessment for special forces. So that 94 to 96, what are you kind of doing? What, how are you moving around in the military and stuff? What, what do you got your eyes set on and what are you doing extra to kind of start moving towards that? Yeah. So I was part of the rock at the, at the 101st, 3rd Battalion, 187th. Um, regiment Rakasans, and uh, you know we had a lot going on. We were we were training, and uh, looking back at that, it kind of makes me laugh now because you know it was like we were training for World War II with bunkers and trenches and all those type of things. It just kind of cracks me up a little bit. But uh, but at Fort Campbell is when I first caught glimpses of Fifth Special Forces Group. And that really, really piqued my interest. And I was really intrigued and I was interested. And, uh, you know, being in the Rakasans, hardcore infantry, discipline, you know, physical fitness, all, all of the key things there to, to be in an infantry unit. But, you know, kind of at a, they made it kind of at a dumb level, like, geez, guys, I mean, we don't have to be this dumb about it. But uh, no disrespect, I'm just, giving you my experience, but, uh, but I had my eye on fifth group and I, I saw those guys training and it just really piqued my interest, man. I mean, the way they were doing things made a lot of sense to me. Uh, they were constantly out there on the range. Uh, they looked different. They acted different. Uh, the guys seemed a lot more mature 
uh, everyone was physically fit, not saying that our guys weren't, but they were just at a different level of fitness. So, uh, so I just continued to train, uh, continue to, to try to get better. We had, um, you know, we had a rotation of Sinai, Egypt for six months in, uh, 95 MFO. Yep. Multinational force and observers. And, uh, yeah, I was at checkpoint three Bravo, which, uh, which is the route that you would take to see, I forgot the name of the mountain, man, forgive me, but where Moses received the, the Ten Sinai. Commandments. Mount Sinai. Yeah. Mount Sinai. There you go. So you had, if, if you were in that time, if you were in that area in 95 to not early 96, and you were going to that specific place, you probably drove by me at checkpoint three Bravo. But, um, but yeah, that's what, that was, that was sign out each of six months and nothing really to do over there, but train and, uh, and get fast and do a lot of pushups and do setups. And we did play some killer, killer softball, really enjoyed doing that. You know, so I started just getting in shape. I was like, man, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to go to special forces assessment selection and, and see if I measure up with some of the top guys in, in the army, see if I can do it. So are you thinking the military as a career now? Cause you did the first two and then you signed on for the additional four. Are you now looking like this is going to be, this is what I'm going to do. Starting to go down that route. Definitely starting to go down that route, but I would say I'm not a hundred percent like bought in, but I'm definitely probably creeping that way. Okay. So here's an interesting thing to me then. You're not, you're, you're on your way there, but you're not there yet, but you're thinking about going in with the elite, but it's still not uh yeah, this is what I'm going to do for life. I've got to kind of understand that. Cause I mean, if you look at it from the outside, you're thinking, well, why do that then? If, if you're looking to be with the elite and you're looking to do this, why would you not just do it for the rest of your career or, you know, until you retire? So can you kind of walk us through what you're thinking and why you're not quite there at a hundred percent of, yes, this is going to be what I do. Is it because of you haven't made it yet or is it, you're just not that sure about the military? Well, I think a lot of it's the fear of the unknown, you know, you don't know if once you get ready to go down that route, like, you know, you go to special force assessment and selection and it's like, you know what, if, if you have it in your mind, you know, I'm going to special force assessment selection then I'm going to go to special forces qualification course, then I'm going to go to a team and I'm going to be on the team for a few years. And then I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this, and it doesn't work out. Uh, you've got this whole, you know, thing planned out. And I'm not saying that's, you know, a terrible way to, to go about it. But I think for me, my, my brain just wasn't, you know, I was more in the here and now this is where I'm at. And these are the things that I'm going to work on. Um, and, and this, you know, once you fast forward a few years, uh, which I'm sure we'll probably, we probably will, and we'll get to it. But there was a certain point where I had over 10 years in, I'd been in special forces. I'd been, a, you know, sniper, ranger, long tab, all of those things been in over 10 years. And I was considering, maybe I should go be an air marshal, you know, after nine 11, uh, that sounds like a cool deal, you know, thank God that didn't happen, but you know, it was something I, I think that, you know, just kind of weighing your options, uh, you know, thinking things through, but 
Uh, I think that's where I was at. You know, I was committed to the task and I wanted to do selection. I wanted to go through the qualification course, but I wasn't ready to say, hey, this is what I'm going to do for the next 30 years. So let me ask, because I, I know how it was for me whenever I got out of the military. I thought maybe I can do better. Is that kind of the thought that you had? Yeah. Once I did get to that point, you know, where I'd, I'd been around for a while, I'd had a, I'd had a lot of deployments, I uh, had a lot of schooling and not really knowing the civilian side and how the money works. And, you know, it looks like you don't really make that much money in the military, but you don't really understand the tax implications at that point, you know, because, <laughs> wow, so. that's a, yeah, it's a big, it's a big, uh, big change for you. But, you know, and then you start looking at, and I guess that saying it, it was true. It, it happened. You know, the grass is green on the other side. You know, you hear about these air marshals and, you know, you think that there's going to be more 9-11 attacks and, you know, maybe you could help and serve in a different way and, and do something to prevent uh, a future attack. And you think you're more on the front line than being a special forces Green Beret, for gosh sakes, what I was thinking, I don't know. But thank goodness I had uh, I had someone that I reached out to that was in special that had been in special forces ended up retiring uh through the advice of someone else through a buddy it wasn't like one of my my main main guys but uh but i ended up talking to him and he's like listen man you've been in over 10 years 10 11 12 years you would be absolutely insane if you got out of the military right now you're almost there you have a few more years continue to serve you know get your 20 do not get out and throw everything away. So um, I was glad that I that I received that advice because I was kind of borderline, you know, little stupid stuff kind of gets on your nerves, but then you realize that that little stupid stuff's going to be probably Everywhere. where you're at on the law enforcement side, where I'm at now. I mean, anywhere you go, you're going to have people that you might have conflict with and little stupid stuff. So you just have to deal with it when you're there and, and you're, you're kind of at that moment, we've said that we kind of look at it. We think we can do better. What rank are you sitting at now? Um, I believe I was at E seven at this wow. time. And so that makes it even more stick out to me. You're a platoon sergeant, you know, an E seven, you've got it made. I mean, you got a couple more steps to take at 10, 12 years and you're going to step away from it. Yeah, thank, I mean, thank goodness I didn't. So, Did fear, I want to ask you this, and, and please be honest with it. Was there ever fear of getting out? You know what I mean? Even when you're thinking about, like, maybe I could do better, maybe I could do this. Was there ever a fear, once again, of the unknown where you're like, oh, yeah, but I don't really know that. Because your whole adult life had been spent in the military. And that's a scary thing to step away after everything you did into a world that you really don't know. You ain't lying, man. You ain't lying. I mean, I, I ended up spending 26 and a half years in and, and retired and, and I was that that's fear, you know, and I knew it was time. Like there was no grasses greener on the, like it's time, like 26 and a half years, it's time to move on and do something else. And, and I had some fear because, you know, it's almost like you're institutionalized, you know, that's like you said, that's all I knew was the military. I knew I was going to get paid twice a month and I knew that if I needed to go and get, you know, something for my headache or my knee hurt, I knew exactly where I needed to go. Uh, 
I mean, everything is really easy. It's really simple when you think about it. I mean, it's very structured. Uh, you have a job, you go do your job. Uh, rank is simple. I mean, you understand who's in charge, who's not in charge. I mean, so leaving that and, and venturing out into the unknown, uh, man, I, I mean, I was scared that, that, yeah, that's definitely got some fear going for sure. Cause you want to be able to, you know, I had, I had two kids. My son was, my son was good. He was going to come to college, but my daughter was still finishing up high school when I ended up retiring. And, and it's like, okay, well, I know that I'm going to get a pension and I'll probably will get some sort of disability. But other than that, like I, you know, I still have bills I need to pay. I need, I got to take care of my kids. I got to take care of my family. So uh, man, that's, that's a scary point. That's definitely a scary point. I want to go back to something you said about it's easy. Uh, you know, pretty much everything that's going on. It's like groundhog day. I mean, you do, don't get me wrong. Things change up, but pretty yeah, much yeah. it's, it's going to be groundhog day. I've even heard guys say that when they're deployed, that it's, that that's easy because you don't worry about anything but the mission. You don't have to worry if this bill got paid or running kids somewhere or anything like that. All you're focused on in the mission when you deployed and you deployed a lot, was it the same way with you where you thought, man, this is, this is really easy doing this. Yeah, man, you could, I could get so laser focused, uh, being deployed. And I was one of those guys, there's, there's different kinds of guys that, that deal with being away from home. And I would say there's guys that like to talk to their wife and their kids every night or, emails, phone calls, you know, whatever. Um, for me, I was the type of guy that I wanted to have little involvement, uh, cause I wanted to stay, I wanted to stay laser focused and sure. Would I talk to my wife or my kids then? Yeah, of course. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't be the guy that's doing it every single night. I, I tried to kind of maintain, I try to compartmentalize as much as I could. I needed to do that so I could stay focused on what we were trying to do. And we were trying to crush bad guys and uh, going back and forth from, you know, talking to your daughter and reading her a bedtime story or something like that. It was just really hard for me to, to continue to do those transitions. I have tons of respect for, for all the great dads and the great moms out there that, that can do those type of things when they're deployed. But it, it kind of changed me a little bit. And yes, I would talk to my family, but I was probably on the more of the minimalist side than than uh, someone that did it uh, over and over, you know, every night. But so, so let me ask you, looking back on it, hindsight's twenty twenty. Now that you look back on it, you see where you're at. Do you regret that? Because I have a feeling, I, I understand you were laser focused. I'm thinking the way I would think, though. I think that when I got to the end of it, I would go, man, maybe I missed something. Maybe, maybe there was something there have you, do you feel that? And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just asking, do you have that kind of feeling about it? Or when you look back on it, does that occur to you? No, I don't, I don't have any regret on that. Like the communication piece. I mean, I did the best I could. Um, and I, I, I feel for me, like, I, I feel like I did something right because, you know, um, my guys, my guys got through, uh, I got through, and, you know, it was my job to, to bring everyone home. So, so I was able to do that. And now do I regret 
you know, those 10 deployments and being gone and missing, you know, my son's baseball games and things like that. Yeah. Like, Oh sure, man. Like you don't get those times back. You just don't get those times back. I mean, life is very precious and you have to take advantage of, of those things. But for me, I, I didn't have that. I didn't have that chance. You know, I was deployed a ton and it just, it was the timing. Now I will say this talking about things are easy, like being deployed and being laser focused and you have, you know, a support element that's, that's keeping you going. You know, I was a single dad for several years uh, toward the end. And uh, that's a hard job, man. That's a hard, that's a hard, thankless job. And uh, for someone that's not like, um, what's the word here for someone that's not like maybe like a great caretaker, like, nurturing and I can make all these fancy meals and, you know, I, I mean, it, it was tough for me as a single dad with two kids, uh, trying to run around him and get him in places. And, and I often did say, I gave mad props. I was like, man, it was easier for me to be in Iraq with a team and, and operating a team than being a single dad and, and trying to make two different events work out. So I have nothing but mad respect for the single parents out there, especially our, our, uh, you know, our single parents in the, in the military, or, you know, they have a spouse deployed or something like that. That's a flipping hard job, man. That's a tough job. Absolutely. And, and here's the thing that, that sticks out for me when you say that you're like, you know, I wasn't, I could fix, you know, a great meal or anything like that. You did the best that you could. And then I look at the flip of that coin and I look how well you ran your teams and I've got to, I've got to think at some point there's a little bit of overflow from that. I mean, you run your teams exceptionally well. You you talk about bringing everyone home. Does any of that pour over into being a father, or is that just a different kind of world? I think so. You know, uh, I couldn't I couldn't cook an elaborate Thanksgiving uh, dinner, which I still couldn't. And even man, I tried. I got to tell you this. This you probably laugh at me for this. I went to one of those places where you can order the Thanksgiving meal and it's like, oh, you know, it's all you got to do is come pick it up. And I was like, I took them at their word, like, okay, sweet. That's what I need to do. Like, I want to go pick up a meal, bring it back home. I'll lay it all out and we'll be good, man. Like I'm, I'm the guy, like this is, this is going to happen. What I didn't realize is it's like all frozen. Like you still got to cook the stuff. And I'm like, well, shoot, man, this didn't do me any good. Like this was a disaster. Like, I don't know what to do with all of this stuff, but now I will say this. I, I, you know, I did my best. I've probably not given myself enough credit and, and I will pat myself on the back a little bit right now. Um, I, I do think I did a great job as a dad, you know, maybe I did miss some gymnastics or, uh, I was late to a basketball game or I got stressed out a little bit over, something stupid that I probably shouldn't have, but, um, but looking back hindsight, 2020, you know, uh, my son's serving, uh, in the army, he's a young E five and he had a great year last year. He won a lot of, uh, awards and they were doing the best squad competition. They made it all almost all the way to the end. So they were just, they were crushing it the whole way through very accomplished. Uh, so he's a young E five in the army. Uh, my daughter, you know, went through community college, two years of free community college, Sand Hills Community College in North Carolina. And then she graduated from Appalachian State. So my son and daughter both graduated from Appalachian State, sons in the Army. 
uh, daughter's working, getting ready to get married this year and just two great kids. Um, very proud of them. Um, you know, we, we stuck together as a team. Uh, it wasn't always perfect, but nothing really is. So, absolutely. so looking back, I was probably a little bit more critical of myself because I'm looking around at all the, the moms and dads that are there and they're bringing cookies to the game and to the coach. And I'm just like, man, I'm just trying to figure out if we're going to go to Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A tonight, you know? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So let's talk about some of these deployments. I want to kind of focus in because a lot of guys don't talk about the Balkans and stuff. And you, you spent a lot of time over there. Um, Can we talk about that a little bit? What kind of your job was over there? Because I know you did a lot of different things over there. You worked counter sniper operations and stuff for presidents that were coming over, but you also did uh, the personnel indicted for war crimes. You did a lot of that searching. Was that really how you cut your teeth as a special forces operator was over there and you really learned? Because I think, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, what you did there and what you did during the GWAT, would you say they're completely different missions? Completely. I mean, with the exception of the Pipwicks, the personnel indicted for war crimes, you know, manhunting. We did a lot of manhunting in Iraq, like tremendous amounts of manhunting. And, uh, but for everything else, you're right. That's, that is where I cut my teeth. Uh, when I showed up, um, you know, the air war was in full swing and we were already heavily involved in the Balkans anyway. So, um, so my first couple of missions, as a newer special forces guy was doing the combat search and rescue, you know, we would spin up and, and we would, we would leave Germany and we would typically go down to San Vito, Italy and stage out of San Vito. And, and we would wait, you know, if they're going to start the air war, uh, a bunch of times, you know, nothing really happened. And we went back home. We were kind of the nine 11 force, the nine one one force, if you will. Um, but then the air war did start. So we continue to do the combat search and rescue. We did have two pilots that were shot down. We did like a three day on rotation, three days off. And wouldn't you know it, uh, both shoot downs. It was the other split that got to go in, but, but we did get, um, we realized after the first pilot got shot down that they were picking up our aircraft. Cause at that time we were, we were staged up at Tuzla. So we had the whole combat search and rescue package staged right there. After the first pilot got shot down, they realized like, hey, these guys are coming in from Tuzla. So we figured that we needed to change up our signature a little bit. And we just didn't want to lift up, lift off, you know, like, hey, there's a pilot shot down, lift up. So we actually decided to do the leadership decided, not not me, not Daryl. But uh, they said, hey, we probably need to do a couple of feints here. So they don't know exactly what's going on. And I was on one of those flights where they said, hey, we're going to go lift off and fly around for a little bit. And, uh, just to keep people honest here, uh, we're not going to fly all the way in, but we flew all the way to the border and ended up getting shot at pretty good. Luckily we survived through all of that, but, um, but yeah, both pilots that got shot down, it was a different split. And then we ended up rolling into Kosovo. I think that was in 1999. So we were the first special forces company in there. Uh, we actually infilled in these big tractor trailers. It was kind of comical. Cause not every, we, you know, we didn't have enough vehicles to get everyone in. So, so yeah, I did, did some work in Sarajevo, uh, with the Pithwicks, the personnel indicted for war crimes. Uh, the first time we did that was a lot of pattern of life when we actually did the Pithwick captures in Kosovo, 
uh, much later. This is probably 03, 04. Uh, so a lot of the national assets had already, they'd been gone from Sarajevo. They'd been gone from Kosovo. We still had some some lower level guys. Uh, we were able to do that. So so I got to cut my teeth a little bit on the manhunting. Um, we did a lot of uh, special reconnaissance. Uh, I wouldn't even say strategic reconnaissance, but we did a lot of special reconnaissance uh, on the border spent some time on the border of Macedonia and infill routes and equipment coming in and things like that. We reported back. So, so I really got a great taste of, of what that, I mean, we had a lot of great success too. I mean, in filling in, uh, we were working with SEAL team two, uh, you know, they would go out and we would be their QRF and then, uh, and then we would go out and they'd do the same for us. Had a lot of success. We didn't get, at least my team, we never got compromised while I was out there. Uh, it's just hard, man. It's hard to be out in, in someone else's backyard and uh, and they know the backyard and you don't. It's it's hard to not get compromised. You probably know this, man, from, from all the work that you do in law enforcement, man. It's hard to be sneaky. Well, let me, let me ask you, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, sneaky, because I, I would say with this and being sneaky, it's more of a law enforcement. It, there's a lot of surveillance. There's a lot of, like you said, pattern of life where you're just watching a guy come and go and learning what they're doing, what they're doing with their life, who they're meeting with, who they're talking to. And it's a lot of intel, not a lot of shots fired. And, and even with your Pifwicks that you did, there wasn't a lot of shots fired there. So no, no none, when none you, in Kosovo. Right. So when you, when you're doing something like that, does that alter your thinking a little bit? Like, man, I'm a green beret and we're doing all this stuff and we're crushing these guys and bringing them in for justice and all that kind of stuff. But do you feel more like law enforcement than an actual, you know, a door kicker? No. Cause at this time, uh, you know, this is pre nine 11. So we felt like we were the top dogs, man. We felt like we were, we were tip of the spear, man. We were out there doing things. Uh, well, actually, not all of this was was pre nine eleven. the The majority of it was pre, like all the combat search and rescue, uh, and some of the things in Bosnia was pre nine eleven. But toward the latter part, I guess it was already passed. But pre nine eleven, man, we thought we were the cat's meow. We were, if I can steal some uh, language from John Stryker uh, Meyer. Uh, that we just talked to yesterday. Thanks for sure. the intro to him, by the way, <laughs> Mac B. Sog, man, what a legend. Uh, but we thought we were tip of the spear that of course, you know, uh, 9-11 happened and GWAT broke out and, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. But, but you know, I think for the special reconnaissance, we we learned a ton and there was so much still going on in, in the Balkans. I mean, we still had to navigate around uh, landmined areas and things like that. So it wasn't like it was just a training exercise in the back 40, a, a Fort Campbell, like there were still a lot of threats. Um, I'd say probably we had an incident where, where we got shot up pretty good, uh, in a hide site, uh, while we were on the border of Macedonia, I think it was more of a recon by fire than, you know, actual legitimate engagement. But, um, which I think that's pretty common in, in the Balkans. It happens, but, but I mean, we had, it was real world, man. It was, it was no joke. And, and, you know, we were hitting our 
communication windows and sending back pictures and Intel was going up to hire. So, so we felt really good about what we were doing and, and we were, we knew that we were crushing it. And I hope by no means, I, I didn't mean that in a way. I, I love that part of the job. That is a very cool part of the job. The reason I bring that up about, cause you hear a lot of guys want to be in the thick of it and stuff. And that sometimes can be monotonous a long time, especially if you're doing long patterns of life and stuff. And I'm of course speaking from the law enforcement perspective. So it could be completely different for you guys, but you don't hear a lot of those stories and you really don't hear a lot of those stories coming out of the Balkans, Kosovo, Bosnia, that almost, would you agree is kind of a forgotten thing that we did? I mean, a lot of people don't bring that stuff up. Would you agree? Dude, it was forgot on September 12, 2001, <laughs> everything that we had, you know, cause a lot of the guys that did that ended up going and doing great things in Afghanistan and Iraq cut their teeth in the Balkans. I mean, national level units, you know, SEAL team six Delta, you know, a lot of those guys were cutting their teeth in the Balkans before Afghanistan and, and Iraq and eventually Syria and all that. But, but yeah, man, that, that was forgotten September 12th. It was like, yeah, what, what is this all about? And no disrespect. I, I didn't take any disrespect. I, I like the sneak and peek, man. I, Absolutely. I, I'm down with it. And, and the reason I bring that up of not being necessarily a door kicker at that time or anything, that, that sneak and peek stuff is super interesting to me. But a lot of people don't talk about it. It's very forgotten. Even if you talk in law enforcement stories, people are like, you know, I want to hear about the warrants that are being served and I want to hear about the takedowns and stuff. They don't want to hear about you watching a guy for three days or four days or figuring out who his mom is or where he banks at or anything like that. But it's very interesting. And I think with it being overlooked, I think a huge part of the story is taken away from the end result a lot of people want that that very end the 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 it's blood the and guts and the, yeah, yeah the, the sexy, sexy part. part of it but you can't get there without that other stuff and it's super interesting how we implemented that stuff over there and in different parts of the world because that was being used all over the world by the end in africa and all things you know all different countries like that can you talk a little bit more about that about what that meant to the operation over there, because I think a lot of people, like I said, don't know this part of the story and it's left out of a lot of things and it led to a lot of big things. And and when we get to Iraq, we'll talk about really you guys were being sneaky and working as undercovers in some of the operations that you were doing. So can you go a little more into depth about it? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's tougher, man. I think it's, it's tougher to do that sneaky Pete type stuff. I mean, it, it's a lot tougher than, than doing the sexy DA, you know, breach the door and, and you're shooting bad guys in the face and all of that. I mean, I think it's tougher developing that Intel and, and painting that picture. And, you know, you look at, um, you know, you look at the bin Laden raid. I think that's probably a, a great example of, you know, the, I mean, the SEALs made that whole thing really sexy by the way they, they executed that. But if you talk to, you know, some of the commanders or some of the guys that were on the ground, it's like, dude, we were hitting harder targets in Iraq and Afghanistan, like every night, like this wasn't like a really challenging target for us to hit. Uh, it just so happened to be the number one target in the flipping world. Uh, and they did a great job. I'm not trying to downplay anything 
But for people that really know the business and they know what they're looking at, they looked at that Bin Laden raid like, holy cow, man, whoever put that, whoever put that together, they were on their A game, man, because they, they had to, I mean, that was PhD level uh, manhunting right there. They, they brought their A game and that was a tough one, but, but, you know, it's funny that you bring all this up, man, because, you know, we had more of the sexy type missions from 06 and that's where, you know, a few of the podcasts that I've been on, it's, it's been around, you know, the Balkans and uh, the initial infill into Iraq in 03 with Operation Ugly Baby. It's been, uh, it's been 2006, specifically April 17, 2006, my live day, you know, two hour daylight firefight in Baghdad, in Adamia. But real, and not a lot of people have heard about the 2007 rotation, which was, was all, you know, we were working with Iraqi special ops and we were doing the, the recce. So we were, we were doing all of the, the human intelligence and, and we were a prolific human intelligence network, uh, slash kill capture machine. And we were just, you know, jetting up those targets uh, for for the guys to go hit every night, sometimes multiple hits uh, every night. And and that takes a whole different that's a that's a crazy amount of work that goes into to building those target packages. And, and I mean, there's man, there's just so much that goes into that. And then, you know, we weren't really getting the assets like the national level folks, you know, they get. They get all the great stuff. They get signals intelligence. You know, they they got ISR up. You know, looking at the target for a couple of nights. You know, we we weren't really getting that, so we were relying on our our human network and and we were jetting up tons of targets, man. And and that whole rotation. Um, and that's when you know Petraeus came in, basically took the gloves off, and uh, it's like, hey, we're gonna we're going to fight this war and we're going to win this war. That was, I think 07 is when we really broke their back, but that's just a very difficult, uh, tough, you know, the targeting and the pattern of life, like we just talked about. I mean, that's a tough business, man. That's, that's a very uh, tough business, very difficult. But let's take it one step further than that. That's not when it ends. Once that direct action happens, they take that person into custody and bring them back. Then the interrogations begin. And a lot of this was due to your team. There was a lot of stuff that was taken down after those targets were taken down. A lot of follow-on missions, a lot of deep interrogations that were given up other people. And I want to talk about 07, but I want to talk about a couple of these things because I want to show the versatility of you guys. Everyone talks about April 17th, and I want to get into that a little bit because I think that's an important part of your story. But I think these other things are super fascinating. Operation Thor's Hammer. Do you want me to set it up or do you want to set it up and run through it? Set it up, please, because it's been a little while since I've... Okay. Uh, so yeah. you identified a cell leader, uh, extrajudicial killing punishment cell, uh, Solder City, uh, he's responsible for IED attacks, and then you are going to get him, you're going to set him up. And this is what I mean by the sneak and peek. This stuff is great that you guys were doing that people don't know about. People, I think, on the outside look at this stuff and they go, oh, yeah, it's just helicopters and guns blazing and everything. They don't look at these little secret missions where you're going to set this dude up with a with a girl. That's how you bring this guy out. So let's talk about that a little how you guys came up with that and how you executed it. Yeah. So you're talking about the DM mission. Uh, it's one of my favorite missions. Uh, but you know, we had so many different, 
you know, Thor's hammer and Loki and all the different ones. So we're going to get into them. Yeah. You, you definitely got to ask me or set them up for me so I can remember which ones they are. But, but for this guy, you know, we had a big, huge whiteboard uh, in our dining room area, which is where we used to eat our meals at Apache. That's where we were at. Uh, We were right on the Tigris river, you know, right in Baghdad, Northeast of the green zone. And we were in a place called Adamia. So we weren't on a huge, we weren't on a huge forward operating base. We were actually located in a few houses, like a a, comp, a compound, and it was uh, Saddam Hussein, a lot of his uh, cronies, and actually a banker or two that kept a lot of his gold. Uh, they actually had a vault in one of the the basement of the houses. There was no gold when we arrived. I promise you that, because uh, this is 06. So there have been at least three years of previous teams. So I promise you, no gold. But we had this big whiteboard where we we had our dinner and we'd have meetings in there and stuff. So we, you know, you got a bunch of hungry young guys, special forces guys that are trying to get after it. This was a target that was left over from our predecessors. You know, you know how the rotations in Iraq work. You know, we had a fifth special forces group team that was there for six to eight months. We would come in for six to eight months. Fifth group would come back for six to eight months, you know, so on and so forth. So when we got there, we're brand new, fresh, and they plopped a target on our lap, and it was Dia. Hey, this guy's killing Americans. He sets IEDs. He does all these things. And we're like, okay, awesome. Let's go get him. For whatever reason, they couldn't capture him. So so you got a bunch of guys that are just sitting around talking like, hey, what could we do? Because at this time, you know, we we would we would be able to get people's phone numbers. But we, you know, we didn't have the assets uh, that the national level guys had where they could, you know, do all of their stuff with the phone numbers. Like we didn't have that system. We, we didn't have the ability to use that. So we had to use, rely on our human intelligence network and our smarts, our street smarts. So we were thinking like, okay, who is this guy? This is, you know, this is who this guy is. This is how old he is. You know, he probably thinks he's a big deal. He's going around bragging. He's killing people. And, you know, he's a gangster, whatever. So just a few of us started talking. We're like, hey, wonder what we could do. What would happen uh, using the female angle? What would happen if a female would call him? We could say it was accidental, but a female calls him and just goes right for the jugular using some sexy language right off the bat, like, Hey, you know, my husband just left. I miss you so much. I wish you were here. When are you going to be here? That type of thing, just something to get his attention and then kind of give a pause and give him time to be like, I think you have the wrong number. You know, who is this? And then kind of like end it, have that, you know, whole mystique thing kind of going. And, and that's basically what we decided like, Hey, wonder what would happen. We have his phone number. Let's see if one of our uh, female friends from the Iraqi side would be able to give him a call and, and we'll see what happens. And that's what we ended up doing. We started developing that relationship. One call went to two calls, went to three calls, and then they started talking on the phone all the time. And then we set for a meeting. And, uh, and that's when we decided, like, hey, this is our opportunity to roll this guy up. Uh, he thinks he's going to meet this, this really sexy Iraqi uh, gal who's just been struggling him along this whole time and uh we'll be there waiting for him and that's that's what ended up happening man women it was his downfall 
women was his downfall. And, yeah. you know, he was, he ended up being really smart about that because we had, a, uh, we had what we called a bread truck. It was like a, a close up, like a box truck. And we had a couple sniper guys set up in there. Cause I mean, honestly, with this guy's background and all the things that he'd done, we, we thought this was, you know, we were probably going to have to kill this guy is, is what we thought. And usually you kind of have a good indication. I don't know if that's what it's like for you guys on the law enforcement side, if you're serving like a high risk warrant or knowing that you're after someone armed, sometimes you kind of get a feel like, man, this, this might end up as a, could go as bad. a shootout. Yeah. yeah. could go bad. That we were very strongly leaning that way. Like this is probably going to go bad. We know this guy's armed and he's probably going to get killed. That's how we went into the mission, but we had, uh, they were going to meet at like a closed store that was going to be their first meeting. And uh, it was going to be right outside Sauter City. And, and keep in mind, I mean, this is 2006. Uh, this is the 20, uh, 22 February 2006 was when the Samara Mosque got bombed. And it basically ignited uh, a civil war. Uh, and we were right there at ground zero of this civil war. And I think it was one of the most deadly time periods for, for civilians of Iraq uh, out of the whole entire time that we were there. And I think it was like the third deadliest most violent uh year uh for american soldiers but i mean it, it's bad man it's it's violent it's deadly it's it's a bad time period and um and we basically you know solder city which we were right outside solder city was basically a no-go zone for a good while for american uh soldiers but we had this whole place locked down and and keep in mind you know uh we're in a we're in like an suv and civilian clothes and i said just over roving picture, right we're roving around uh i was wearing like a green uh track suit like a top it had the uh, iraq but I'll, I'll put the picture know. up i have the picture of it so yeah yeah it's a good it's a good picture but <laughs> but we're roving around and and we just couldn't get this guy inside the store and and uh every, you know our folks that are reporting it's like hey we don't see anybody but we know they're going back and forth on the phone, back and forth, back and forth. Uh, but we finally located him. He was outside the store. He was he was actually being smart. Uh, he, he you know he felt something was a little off, uh, and he was trying to get her to leave the store to come to him. But of course, she wouldn't do it because she wasn't there. Uh, but by the time this whole thing uh, worked out, you know, we ended up parking, and and I went and uh, grabbed a dude and threw him down, and and. Uh, and that was actually, that was a great start to our rotation, man. We got a great bit of uh, intelligence off of him. And uh, it really, it really started things for us, man. It was, it was a great mission. Well, it really slowed down the IEDs against coalition forces by taking him, the interrogations like we talked about in the aftermath, and then the follow-ons that came with it. Uh, let's talk yeah. about you guys collecting up a couple vehicles, uh, about 13 of them. During Operation Loki, you that's had... all I need to say. I'm tracking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Do I need to yeah. set this one up, or are you good? I'm good. I'm good. Okay. You say the vehicles. So, actually, there's a great picture out there of one of my colleagues uh, from Kerrville, Texas. His name's Ryan Land. Actually, he's the guy in the picture with me when I'm wearing my green Iraqi track okay. suit. But there's a great picture of Ryan. If I if I could find it, I'll I'll get it over to you. But he's on uh, some kind of souped up street bike motorcycle type thing uh it's it's kind of funny and he was wheeling it off the car lot so we were after a guy 
we knew he owned a car lot right outside Sodder City. So we developed a ruse that, hey, we're going to go hit this car lot and we're going to play dumb Americans. And we're going to say that we're looking for so-and-so. Totally different name, made up name, some Iraqi dude. So we were going to show up, talk to his workers and say, hey, we're here for this dude. This is who we want. And we were hoping they would say, that guy doesn't own this car lot. This is a big misunderstanding. You know, this is not the guy. It's like, well, okay, well, who's the guy that owns the car lot? Uh, let's talk to him. We'll clear this whole thing up and everybody be about their day. We can go home. We're safe. You guys do your stuff. So that was kind of like what we were after was we were trying to set that whole thing up. Um, so we went to the car lot and uh, we started talking to the folks there and, and they kind of played dumb with everything. Can yeah. I interrupt you for just a second? Can you explain yeah. to the general public what an Iraqi car lot looks like? Because I have a feeling it doesn't look the same as uh, a Chevrolet dealership here. No, it, it actually did. It, it, I mean, it, really? it was used cars. Yeah, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It was it was like what you would see. Okay, let me let me tell you this. Something that you would see like outside of a military installation. Okay. Where they're okay, trying to, okay. Now yeah, I'm tracking all, with you, but yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. They're all, uh, they're I all used car. They're all used cars and they're all overpriced and the, they're, the they're 25% there, they're interest and it's pay. Uh, it's cash where up front. used, used right. car salesman comes from like, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, there was actually a, a bunch of cars there and, um, uh, we ended up talking to those guys and they kind of played dumb about it and they didn't give anything up. So we were like, all right, well, we're going to start confiscating these vehicles. And they were like, what? It's like, we're going to start confiscating these vehicles. And uh, when we leave here, we're taking all the vehicles with us. And then that's when they really panicked. They were just like, oh gosh, because I think the way it works in Iraq, you know, there's kind of like a little drug deal going on and the way the money is exchanged and the vehicles exchanged, like, you know, they're kind of trusting this guy, like, Hey, I want you to sell my car and then I'm going to get all this money back. <laughs> and if my car disappears, then I'm, you know, so we ended up confiscating all the cars, which took uh, us and our Iraqi soldiers, our Iraqi special ops dudes that we were with. And I was with one of my partner uh, teams, uh, Matt Gerard. Uh, so we had two ODAs and, and some Iraqi special op guys. And we ended up confiscating all of their vehicles. And then we just told them like, hey, this is who we are. We got all your cars. If you guys wanna make this thing right, uh, we'll figure it out. And if not, then you're never gonna see these cars again. You guys are gonna have to deal with it. Which that created an absolute shit storm, man. Uh, amongst all the bad guys, you know? So, so we were getting word back through our human intelligence network that the pressure was on this guy. He had to go into hiding, so it interrupted you know, all of his terrorist activity for a little while and guys were after him because they thought he was shady. And so, so yeah, I mean, not every single time you eliminate a target and it's like, okay, he's gone. Sometimes there's other ways that you can affect things. Uh, and I think that was a great example and it took some creativity and, you know, we actually had guys come out of the woodwork, uh, that we're calling. And, and I, th I think our uh, company headquarters, because we took everything back to the green zone. And um, I think our company headquarters, they were getting calls from all over the place. They were like, hey, this is my 
you know, this is so-and-so from the state department and, you know, the ambassador's chief bodyguard's little brother had his, you know, pinto over there, you know, we were getting all these weird calls and all that type of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, overall, man, it was a very successful, uh, but creative mission for sure. And that's more of just putting news out in the streets. That's just letting the streets know your business. Cause you know, they're listening. So I, I oh, think yeah. that that was a, that was an amazing one. Uh, operation parliament. Uh, now this one was a time sensitive one and, uh, a female Iraqi parliament member, uh, was abducted. So, uh, do I need to set this one up anymore? Or do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know what you're talking about for that one. So yeah, you're right. It was a time sensitive target and, you know, we didn't have a lot of time to plan. Uh, we got intelligence of, of where she were, where she was located. And, and this is once again, right over there by Sadr city, uh, which is absolute, just nightmare of an area. Uh, a lot of IEDs. We knew we were going into a tough spot. And we didn't, you know, because it was time sensitive, we really didn't have the time to, to plan it all out. And we were limited, you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we didn't have capability for signals intelligence. You know, that was different assets. We also didn't have, you know, helicopter support, even though for parliament, that wouldn't have really helped us. Just wait, trying to wait a minute. A little bit more. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Uh, uh, Special Forces ODA did not have helicopter assets. Most don't, man. That's that's a higher level asset. Like we we were, you know, we were a small ODA out in the city. Like uh, that that wasn't an asset that that we had. Now, could that be something that we requested months out and and try to plan for? Yeah, of course. But, uh, but like I, I think, you think that's of, I think that's like news to people though, because when they, I mean, you would agree when they look at it from the outside, they think, of course, you have all these assets. You're special forces. You have all the, and I want people to understand how like deep in the shit you guys were. I mean, you guys were buried in it out there. Yeah, we really were, man. I mean, we were the last, uh, you know, in 06 when the Civil War ignited, uh, Baghdad was pretty much, you know, a Sunni, a Sunni uh, area. And, you know, the Shia had just pushed everyone out, they had taken over Baghdad. And Adamia, which is a suburb of, of uh, Baghdad, Adamia was the last Sunni stronghold. So we were, you know, we were right across from Adamia. We were really close to Sadr City, which was a Shia, basically a Shia slum. That was basically a no-go area for us uh, a lot of times. But we were just in the middle of a complete shit show. But we didn't have those assets. Like, you know, we didn't have anywhere for helicopters, you know. Now, when you think, when people think of like SEAL Team 6 or Delta and some of those national level assets, they have those things. They have those capabilities. But for a normal ODA, that's not a typical asset. Like that's that's unheard of. But uh, but anyway, you know, time sensitive target. We didn't really have a lot of time to plan. Uh, we were going to we were going to drive in. Uh, we were able to link up with our coalition forces and. Uh, we had some tank support and they were willing, you know, they were down, you know, tankers were down like, Hey, let's do this. And we were like, Hey guys, you know, yes, you, you can be there and be in, in some kind of supporting uh, capacity. But if we have you anywhere close to the target, man, I mean, we're going to burn the target before we even get there. So, so <laughs> yeah, we pushed the tanks to happen yeah. with a tank. Yeah. Yeah. So we pushed the tanks back, but it, it kind of, it comes full circle. 
Um, so we had a general location where the female uh, Iraqi parliament member, member was, and and we ended up. Um, I think we we're about four or five hundred meters from the target building. We hit a we hit an IED. Yeah, so we get about uh, four or five hundred meters from the target building, and uh, lead vehicle hits an IED, and it's a moment of pause for you know I'm in the third vehicle. It's a moment of pause for for me trying to, you know, it's like wow, we just got hit with an IED. This is terrible. Um, our lead vehicle is the is the vehicle that got hit, and saw the gunner uh, get thrown out of the turret, and he was injured, so we needed to to get some medical treatment his way. And it seemed like a minute or so, but it must've only been a couple seconds. Got that going on. And um, at that time we knew we were compromised, you know, it was basically an early warning. Uh, don't get closer. They knew it was gonna slow us down. And as soon as I uh, got out of my vehicle and made sure our our medical team was, was straight uh, I was like, man, get those tanks up here. Let's see what we can do. And of course, we ended up hitting a dry hole, um, but the mission wasn't lost. Uh, I'm not able to get into specifics of of how everything went down, but uh, the folks that that kidnapped the good female Iraqi parliament member, they obviously knew that we were coming, and that we almost were. We almost uh, recovered her, uh, but we were able to get word through our network that it might be a better idea to, to go ahead and, and maybe release her instead of going down this road because it wasn't yeah. going to end well. You bring up the, the gunner's turret in that you and I had talked uh, before the show tonight and we had discussed a, a picture that you had sent me about the gunner's turret and that you, once again, I'm going to go back to, it's all about the team. You had taken up positions in that, a very vulnerable position in your team to sometimes go in the gunner's turret. Um, when you guys are running around without having the assets that, that a lot of people think that you guys had without being, having the ability to kind of get what you need as you need it. How do you face it differently than, uh, I think a lot of people think that you face what's happening. Am I making sense when I ask that question? How did, how did we face it? Yeah, well, so like when when you're getting ready to go out and do it, when you're running these missions, when you're doing all these different things and you don't have these assets and stuff like that, how do you guys look at each other to where you step up and you go into the gunner's turret or you say, I'll do this because I know it's super dangerous and I don't want you to have to do it again? Or how do you guys approach that as a team effort and, and as leaders because you were a leader in that group? Well, you bring up a great point and you bring up a really complex, tricky situation that kind of just typically gets swept under the rug and no one really has a good, good understanding. So to understand where we were at, at Apache, basically these are, you know, like I said earlier, these are like houses. This is not a, a huge forward operating bases where we have thousands of people and every imaginable asset that you can imagine. Like we don't have that. So we have a compound that we still are responsible for defending. Yes, we had help. We had Iraqis that helped us, but who were in charge, you know, of the Iraqis was was our guys. Right. So, and a lot of people don't realize that in combat, there's a lot of administrative things that you have to do. Like, you know, you still had to do meetings, and there's you know targeting meetings, and you know you have to do face to face with your command, your your higher headquarters, and 
you need to to make sure you're getting food and fuel i mean there's a lot of things that you have to do administratively so for us it was even more challenging because we still had a compound that we couldn't just roll out every american and leave iraqis there so we had to leave part of our team to make sure our base defense was set and we could actually protect our compound and then we had to take a portion of our team to do our meetings and our administrative runs so i took that upon myself like if, if our vehicle was leaving our base i was there because i felt that was my job as the team sergeant was to make sure that in, in my eyes that was the most dangerous even though being an apache was ridiculously dangerous and we got hit often ak-47 pkm machine gun rpgs uh, Katusha rockets. I mean, dude, everything. We had everything. We got hit with everything there over what? and over. Typically when it was nighttime, we got hit. But so it was a dangerous place, but it was also very dangerous being on the roads and driving. So uh, typically daylight, it was like, man, if vehicles were leaving our compound with Green Berets, I was in that vehicle. And I felt that it was my duty to to share that responsibility to share that danger with with my team i wanted them to see like hey i'm not scared to be up in the gun i'm gonna gun that's our most vulnerable exposed position if you get hit with an ied the gunner's probably dead or missing missing limbs so i wanted to share that with my team uh, i wanted to know that uh, i wanted them to know that i was prepared to to shoulder that burden right alongside with them and, and we would take turns uh you know, I wasn't always gunning, but I would I would definitely take turns up there. I would take turns driving. Uh, I would take turns setting, you know, in the in the in the main seat, the TC seat. So I just thought it was important, and it was a way for me to tell my team that I trusted them. You know, hey, Big D's up in in the gun, and he trusts you guys to do the right thing and go to the right areas and drive. And, and navigate through the streets of Baghdad. And, and it was a trust thing. So, um, and, and I felt that was, that was great team building and, and confidence. Well, and, and I bring it up for the simple fact that you didn't have to do that. Like that wasn't a thing that you had to do. And when we very no. first started talking about service and selfless service to others, and the reason I brought it up, I mean, I know that it was in while we're talking about a mission, but it, it, it reminded me to talk about that, you being up in the gunner and how important that was to you. With all of these missions that you guys are doing, especially the ones that you guys are doing where it's these sneak and peeks, you guys have to trust each other immensely with everything's going on because these are categorically not conventional. They are as unconventional as unconventional gets. And I think that there is, and you would have to tell me because you were there, there's a different level of trust. And and I, I get it. You trust the guy to your left and to your right. But when you're talking about the stuff you guys are doing, it's a way deeper trust. Would you agree? Yeah, definitely. Because, you know, the way that we rolled, you know, we, we rolled in two vehicles, two up-armored vehicles. And we typically, our typical package on any given day, um, we would have three green berets in each vehicle. So if you could just imagine this DJ, it's almost unheard of uh, to, to see 
two vehicles driving around in Iraq uh, in 2006, height of the Civil War, most dangerous time period of the war. And we're in the flipping center of gravity in Baghdad. <laughs> right. And people's eyeballs would be like the size of saucers when they would see us drive by and there's only two vehicles. They were like, oh my gosh, what are these people doing? Who are these people? How are you dressed typically? So that was, that was another uh, fun thing that we did. So we typically, we had our kit, we had our helmets and we had our, uh, you know, our body armor and all that type of stuff. We had chest rigs, but we typically, you know, we were kitted out and we had desert tops. We typically wore desert tops unless we were doing missions. And, uh, if we were doing, you know, missions that we had planned for, we were wearing desert flight suits actually have some pretty cool pictures of us, you know, wearing the flight suits, even though they're a little hot, you know, in, in the summer Baghdad. So if you saw us in a vehicle, you would see special ops soldiers, but we typically wore jeans or some type of cargo pants. And here's the reason why, because there was a, a method to the madness. Now, if we were doing an administrative run and we we're doing some type of logistic type stuff, maybe we were going to the PX and we were you know, stocking up on DVDs and movies and, you know, whatever, some kind of entertainment just to take your mind off things for a little bit. We would typically leave someone in our two vehicles to, to watch the vehicles. We would take off our kit, take off our helmet, take off our chest rig, body armor, take off our desert top and wearing a polo like I'm wearing right now. And then I get out of that up armored vehicle and I'm wearing jeans and boots and a polo. And I look like just every other, especially I have a, a beard. So I look like every other contractor with my ball cap and my sunglasses on. I look like every other triple canopy Blackwater uh, contractor that's on the big bases back in Iraq. So uh, that way we didn't have to worry about Big Sarge, what we call Big Sarge, you know, clearing our pistols and doing all that type of nonsense or why we're wearing ball caps or why we're, you know, our sleeves are rolled up or wiring our boot, uh, our, our boots blouse, you know, all the stupid ridiculous right. that, that, you know, the soldiers had to deal with over there. We didn't play that game. That's the way we, we, uh, avoided that small victories, man, small victories. Absolutely. And, and as long as, you know, we're talking about it with as many combat deployments as you're doing, those small victories start to add up into big victories. Um, oh, yeah, wanna... man, cause it's good. It's good for morale for sure. Let's talk about Operation Omega, uh, and it's the last one that I want to talk about. Now, these guys that you're looking for, <clears throat> they're uh, Almaty leaders. Uh, they're responsible for abductions, executions, attacks on coalition forces. There's a terrorist cell leader that was at a gas station, and they were screening customers like you talked about to see whether they were Sunni or Shia there. Uh, you guys got together. You devise this daytime operation that you're going to do, and you're going to try and roll this dude up and figure out what's going on. So is that enough setting up, or do you want me to give a couple more? No, that's perfect. That's okay. Perfect. So another thing, too, I want to highlight is daylight. You know, we did a lot of daylight missions, you know, and, and you always hear everybody talk about the military owns the night. We have night observation devices that the enemy, you know, doesn't have that capability. So it's like, hey, why would we fight anybody during the day uh, when when we're giving up so many advantages, so many capabilities, you know? But you know, we had we had to rely on what we had, and uh, it was it was hard. You know, we're using <laughs> this network, 
And it's hard, you know, I think probably the majority of the time that we were there in Baghdad, there was a curfew. So, so for us to have one of our Iraqi human folks that was helping us, let's say for this instance, being a trigger, which basically means, uh, I don't know if this is what law enforcement calls it or not, but that's what we called it. We had a trigger where we had someone that was in the vicinity of the gas station serving as our trigger. And as soon as they called us, let us know, Hey, so-and-so is at the gas station. This is a quick description. You know, that served as our trigger. Once we got that trigger, we were rolling, man. Is that, is that familiar to you? To you yeah. I, I don't know that I've heard the word trigger being used, but you have someone in close contact with what's going on. But as things develop, they kind of roll out of the scene. Right, right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. They kind of melt away, man. They melt away. Yeah. Pre-op so, surveillance, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So once again, we went back to our, uh, our bread truck package and we had, uh, we loaded up the team in the back. And what is not so funny about this bread truck is I fell out of this bitch, not once, but twice back in the green zone. We were back at our company headquarters and, uh, we did a little bit of prep. We did a little bit of rehearsals. And of course you can't have a white dude uh driving this you know this this vehicle so we used one of our interpreters who you know was obviously iraqi but he wasn't that familiar with the truck so the first time he kind of got me by surprise and i didn't realize that we were getting ready to take off and he he started up and gunned it and i fell out the flipping back so everyone got a great laugh once they realized i was absolutely hurt. So we creeped up about five meters. I ended up getting back in the truck. Everyone had a great laugh. I was like, okay, that's awesome. You guys it's a are great hilarious. way to start an operation though. You're pissed off and the it, rest of the operation. It really is. And, and I wasn't like a superstitious guy, DJ, but you know, I'm kind of thinking like, man, this op isn't starting off that great. Like right. I've already fell out of this thing. Like, <laughs> am I going to get shot or blown up on this thing? Like, I'm not off to a great start, but then he kind of tinkers around with the vehicle and he kind of goes smooth. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, but he kind of went smooth for a little bit. And I think I was trying to adjust my kit or my gear. And then he flipping slams on the brakes or guns it again. I forget, I forget which one, but I ended up flying out the back again for the second time. So by this point, luckily I'm not hurt either time besides my pride and my ego, because all the guys are hysterically laughing, you know, that camaraderie on a team is just, you know, dark humor and Absolutely. it's like, Hey, are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. It's like, Oh, then everyone just hysterical laughing like a bunch of hyenas. It's crazy. But, uh, but anyway, that's kind of the start. That's a little background for you, but we finally figured it out. So we're in the back of a truck. We ended up closing the door when we started rolling and, and just keep in mind, this is daylight. There's not a lot going on. We lose a lot of our uh, our advantages when we're doing these daylight hits, but we had a good trigger. Uh, we felt good about it. Uh, we trusted our Iraqi that was out there on the ground. What we did was we had a couple of vehicles, uh, up armored vehicles, that was trailing our truck at a at a good clip. But if we needed them, they would they would be right there. So uh, so we got up to the gas station and. Um, we rolled out the back and I was going to be one of the first guys out. And I was using this as kind of a leadership development for my guys. Cause this is, I believe it was toward the end. 
And I was like, you know what? I'll be left because normally I'm like, you know, as the as the as the guy, I'm I'm like with the you know the the center element that's gonna really you know be right there, actions on. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna be left side security. So I'm gonna roll out first. I'm gonna set up left side security. The next couple guys are gonna go out. They're gonna set up right side security. Then the rest of the team with one of my younger guys leading, which I would normally be. They're going to go right toward the center and get the bad guy, call it a day. So let's break this down real quick. Let's just yeah. recap before we finish. You've fallen out of a truck twice. You're not superstitious, yeah. but know something's up. You decide to take yeah. this mission as a not normal mission and take left instead of center and uh, just a security position instead of the team lead. I just want to make sure everyone's following how much you have started out this mission and what you're really headed towards. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. But, uh, but it just so happened me and my partner, whoever it was, I can't remember, but, uh, we ran to our spot and the guy was like, you think of the gas station, you got the pumps and then you got like the little store where, you know, there's items for sale and the, the guy, you know, the guy that's doing the cash register and all that type of stuff. But where me and my partner ended up was right where our target was, like right there. Like I ran right into the dude. It was like five seconds. I mean, we five seconds we had jackpot. And I mean, it's like my <laughs> the main element. Like we hadn't even got to their to their location yet. And I'm calling jackpot. Like, hey, we got it, dude. Jackpot. Two dudes, you know, we got a whole team of pipe hitters there, like ready to just punch people in the face and, and take action. <laughs> I say that kind of in, in jest, not literally. You know, within seconds, we have jackpot, successful mission, throw the guy in the back of the truck. Uh, everybody loads back up. They're like, what the heck just happened? What D, did you set that up, man? And I was like, no, dude, it's just the way it went down. <laughs> it's where I went. The guy was there. I grabbed him and threw his ass in the back of the truck. and. And we rolled out of there, man. It was so smooth. But that sounds like really cool. But, you know, there's a lot of planning and trust. I think kind of things that we were talking about earlier that go into those type of things where you can you can look at your guys and say, hey, man, I trust you. I know that you'll do the right thing and, you know, all that type of stuff. But, but yeah, man, that was a fun op, good memories. Yeah, well, uh, falling out of a truck twice and then finding jackpot, you know, with just you and another guy. It made up for it. You might, yeah, but you might have tried that, you know, a couple more times. All right. So what did those guys mean to you and what did they mean to your career? Yeah, it was definitely the the pinnacle. It was the highlight. Um, you know, a lot of guys say that, you know, like being a team sergeant, leading a, operate, a special forces operational detachment alpha in combat, that is the pinnacle. You know, you can continue on and do a lot of other great things, but there's nothing like leading a 12-man operational detachment alpha in combat and i would like just to kind of one up that a little bit there's nothing like leading a 12-man special forces operational detachment alpha and being the best like you know for for 10th group they have the the larry tourney award and uh it's for the best special forces operational detachment in 10th group you know at that at this time this is 2006 so there's only three battalions so you're thinking you know, there's 54 teams, 54 special forces teams in 10th group. 
54 12 man teams and uh we were voted uh the best team uh in all of 10 special forces group for all of the the great things that that the guys did uh in 2006 i was just lucky enough uh and fortunate enough to be to be the team sergeant um of, of that that great group of dudes and these were all blue collar dudes these were young guys they were hungry they were eager they were aggressive you know we had we had a motto uh that we try to stick to speed surprise violence of action overwhelming firepower and uh we you know we try to use our aggressiveness uh to our advantage we we look for opportunities where other teams you know, we're hesitant or scared of the, the threats. We, we viewed those as opportunities like, Hey, let's get out and maybe somebody will be dumb enough. They'll shoot at us today and we can, you know, obliterate them. So we, we were like apex predators, man. That's, that's what we tried to be that rotation. So that was my guys. I was very fortunate to lead them into combat and uh, we had a great rotation. Uh, we were probably one of the most decorated, uh, uh, teams that year too. I believe we had three bronze stars with Valor, uh, a bunch of bronze stars, which, you know, whatever, but we had three bronze stars with Valors. I think we had three Arcoms with Valors. I mean, we were a very, very Valorous unit, highly decorated, best team. I was fortunate enough because of the performance of my guys, uh, the Frederick award, uh, which, you know, that was the, um, top operator. That was the top operator award for 2006. I was fortunate. I think you can actually see that. That's that award right there. So yeah, man, uh, the guys mean, uh, they, they mean everything to me. They, they still do. Uh, we had a great rotation in 07, which hopefully uh, later on uh, some of those exploits, cause we had some crazy, crazy missions from that time period. And I think as I continue on my podcast journey, we'll probably start venturing into the 07 things. Because we really, uh, we really burnt Iraq down uh, even more than we did in '06. But yeah, the guys mean a lot. I, I would like to to mention uh, Dave Roten. Uh, he started out as a young guy on my team, and, and unfortunately, he was killed in Afghanistan uh, in 2014 as a contractor. So just to kind of give you a little context about Dave, you know, you've heard me talk about you know we had the best team. That's true. We we did. It was a fact. You know, we had the best team in 10th group in 2006. Well, we had our own award, our own internal award, and it was called, it was called the hard hitter award. And it was given out every single week. And it was a big, huge sledgehammer. And if you happen, and, and none of the leadership could, they, the leadership wasn't eligible. So myself, our team warrant and our team leader, or captain, we weren't eligible for the hard hitter award but we could vote on the hard hitter award. So it was voted upon your peers and the, and the leadership team. And every single week, a guy would, would be voted for, uh, for the hard hitter award. And uh, they would be able to decorate it or write something on it or, you know, glue something, whatever. But Dave Roten was our guy that was the hard hitter. He won the hard hitter the most, that whole entire ro- rotation. We were there eight months. So for us to be the best team in 10 special forces group, Dave was the best and top operator from our team. And he was a phenomenal operator. And uh, when his time came, he answered, uh, he answered the call. Uh, they got hit with a V-bid uh, at his compound in Afghanistan. 
they breached the gate. They sent people through. Uh, Dave and his teammates uh, eliminated those threats on the ground, and then they were getting um, they were getting hit from the rooftop. And Dave had a, a two hundred three, so he had a grenade launcher on his rifle. So they called for Dave to come to the rooftop to help with the threat that was just hammering the rooftop. And unfortunately, when Dave got to the rooftop, he was uh, he was shot and killed. But uh, he was a phenomenal dude. You know, I think people, um, if you've ever given someone, if you've ever given a eulogy or if you've ever passed a, an American flag to someone, you know, I think you would feel differently uh, and feel strongly about our country. I know that, that I have. And, uh, you know, I wear a bracelet. I wear a bracelet for Dave. I can't go into detail uh, much more than this one little saying here, but I will say that Dave will be remembered and honored uh, for the remainder of time. He will be a star. He is a star. Uh, he will never be forgotten. Well, and we're even going to add his photo in with yours for your episode this week. And and uh, I, I think it's an important story that, that people get out there. Because once again, like we talked about with the Balkans and things like that, these undercover operations, people don't hear about stuff like that. Once they're gone away from the army or whatever, you don't you don't hear, hear their stories maybe carried forward because of whatever company they may be working for, or whatever it may be, you don't hear those stories. So I'm glad that you took the time to talk about that. No, I was going to say thank you so much uh, for allowing me to talk about it because, you know, I think for the families, it's important. Uh, you don't want your, you know, you don't want the name forgotten. You you want to be able to say that name and, and to celebrate that life. And and I'm terribly sad that, that we've lost Dave, but uh, man, he he went out guns a blazing. And if, if you're going to have to go out, Man, he went out guns a blazing. Man, he went out guns a blazing. Well, and 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 it's an amazing story, uh, and I know how much that story and how much he means to you. That kind of brings us into the next thing. So you reach the pinnacle there. You have a great rotation in 07, but then 08 through 16, you you're assigned to the special warfare uh, school, correct? Yeah, I spent four years at, at the schoolhouse, and I was uh, I was an online instructor for Advanced Non-Commissioned Officer course, which was definitely plush and easy and simple. Uh, not being operational, kind of heard at the same time, but that's when I was doing my single dad time. And then the, the Special Forces community in the military graciously allowed me to, to homestead at Fort Bragg and spend another four years of staff, because typically you know, you, you go away from your operational assignment for three or four years and you kind of catch a break and then you go back to your team or your group and you're operational again and you start deploying. Uh, that's typically the way, the way it works. But because of my status as a single dad and I, I've been operational for 10 years straight, you know, 10 rotations and all that, they, they allowed me to homestead and, and be a single dad and, and take care of my kids. So I'm, I'm definitely grateful uh, for that opportunity. The reason I bring that up, because you took kind of a different turn at the end of your special operations career. You got to Homestead. You said that you're, you know, not deploying and things like that. So you get to slow down the engines a little bit before you retire. I'm not saying you completely slow down, but you definitely are getting to see a different side of it. You're getting to see that dad side and all. But I've got to wonder, whenever it's all over, when it comes to the end, uh, 17, you retire, 
you step away from this career, this life. Uh, you've had a little time to slow the engines down, like we said, but you're stepping away. And what we talked about in the very beginning, this is all you've now you've known your whole life. I mean, your whole adult life has been this, has been deployed, has been in combat areas, has been doing everything that you were doing, sometimes shooting bad guys in the face. All of these things build over time. So when you step away from it, being that single dad, you step away from this life, you got to tell me your mind state because I have a feeling that even with the slowdown, everything's got to come to like a screeching halt the day you step away. Yeah, it did. Uh, I was actually lucky though, because I was able to, uh, I was actually able to start working while I was doing my transition. So, uh, so you skill yeah, typically the army. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to do, uh, I was able to do some of that. Um, cause I, you know, I've been in so long, typically the last year is kind of like, Hey, get your physicals done. You're, you're on your own, do, you know, do college or do whatever. I mean, I already had, I already had my college finished up. So, um, so I was fortunate enough. I was able to start working in July of 16. My official retirement was January, 2017. So I started working, uh, surprisingly enough at the museum of the Bible. Uh, it was under construction up in, uh, Washington, DC, you know, 430,000 square foot, brand new museum, $550 million, uh, just an incredible, uh, incredible museum. And, I would have never thought in a million years that that would have been my transition from being a Green Beret Special Forces to, you know, working at the Museum of the Bible. But that's what I ended up doing. You know, you you have to provide for your family and you still have to pay the bills. And uh, I ended up doing that for a few years. But, you know, it definitely was uh, a huge transition. Uh, it was a huge transition to go from Fort Bragg to D.C., especially during this time period. I mean, this is 2016 and, you know, it's the Clinton, uh, Trump, and I'm not trying to get political. I'm just telling you going from, you know, North Carolina military installation type space <laughs> yeah. to, to DC. And then of course, you know, uh, how everything kind of played out, you know, DC was just a different animal for me, but yeah, you know, I felt, I felt like, uh, at times like, man, this is, this is very different. These are very different people. I was trying to get used to, you know, having like 20 people on the same email. I didn't understand that at first and now it doesn't really bother me that much, but, uh, you know, little small things like that. I just use an example. It's like, I, I remember being a, a brand new civilian person. It's like, why is this person asking me something very simple that I could take care of, but they're putting like 20 people on the email just to make sure that, their supervisors and their supervisor, supervisor, supervisor knows that <laughs> they asked this question and it's going to get handled. Like, it's so weird to me. It, it's got to be a foreign world. Now, what I want to ask, though, is did the post-traumatic anything come from it? everything that you had seen over all those years? Did it ever make itself known to you or did you do pretty good at staving it off? Oh, yeah, that's a great question, man. It's a, it's a deep deep question. That's a, that's a great question, but, but yeah, man, I did, I did have some problems. Um, you know, you have to compartmentalize so much, uh, especially back then. I mean, it was just such a violent place and there's so much violence and, and death, uh, that you have to deal with. And I think I compartmentalized a lot of that. 
but at some point it starts coming back up and you have to deal with it. And, um, you know, toward, toward the end and you start doing all your physicals and, you know, I went to a clinic, a TBI traumatic brain injury clinic, uh, Shepherd spirit is what they call it at Fort Bragg is, is one of the clinics. And I went there cause it was on my list. Like I had to go to the traumatic brain injury clinic and yeah, I had to go through all the stuff and I thought they were just going to be like, Hey, you're good to go. Thanks a lot. But uh, they were like, hey, man, uh, so you have headaches and tell us a little bit about some of your head injuries and how often have you been around explosions and uh, RPG blasts and rockets, mortars, you know, all these IEDs. And, and it was just like, well, shoot, how much time do you have? <laughs> you know, we'll talk about right. it. Um, but yeah, so I left there and it was like, well, wow, I, I have something wrong here. I have, I have traumatic brain injury and I, I, you know, I was, I was taking magnesium. I was taking trazodone, I think, and taking a bunch of stuff. And, and then I started really, you know, contemplating like, do I want to continue? Like, is there, is there another alternative is, can I do something else uh, to try to, to help with these headaches and, and things like that? And um uh, for me, I found that exercise and fitness, I mean, I'm, I'm a straight up work in product. I'm a, I'm a work in progress. I think you and I were talking on the phone one day. Do you have a treadmill in your office? Uh, I don't have one in my office. I have one in my garage. Were I'm you, were you on the, the treadmill when we were talking one morning? Yeah. I think that really does a lot for me, man. It helps me. <laughs> <laughs> you got a good memory, but yeah, man, I think, uh, I, and you know, we do these walking challenges at work and I think my colleagues at work think I'm crazy. Cause it's like, how does one guy get 20,000 steps a day? Like, do you put your Fitbit on like your dog or something and let the dog run around? But it's like, you he know, he takes I think his phone me, calls in the morning on the treadmill. That's how he gets 20,000 steps. That's what I tell people. I say, Hey man, before I really even come into the office, I'm already setting at 10. So, and then the rest of the day is all gravy. You know, I just try to be active, but, but I do think that's something for me, uh, for my, for my mental well being. you know, if I could ever like really zero that in and get my whole fitness strategy, you know, I could be probably a machine, but, but right now I think where I'm at, you know, it helps my, my mental well being and, and the treadmill and I have an elliptical now, man, I have a secret weapon. I just got an elliptical. So uh maybe you won't hear that it won't be as loud if we're talking on the phone in the morning but but yeah i have had to deal with some of those things man there's there's some traumatic things uh there's some just unspeakable things that you see or do in combat that you know you just you just have to live with and i think everyone has their own journey and how they process that and how they deal with it but you know dj you know this as well as i do but our community is hurting and um i hope that i hope that by you know i think it's so honorable what you're doing dj and i appreciate it uh have a lot of appreciation for what you're doing because you know i think our generation dj we maybe we probably grew up reading books a little bit more or you know paperbacks yeah. and you know this is a different generation so this generation they're listening to to podcasts and and things like that. And, and that's why I think it's so honorable what you're doing, because maybe there's some folks out there that are struggling or having a tough time and, and they hear guys like me and guys like some of your other guests out there that are listening in 
uh, to your great podcast and, and maybe it helps, you know, some of their coping uh, strategies and, you know, there's, there's different ways that folks can handle it. And I know there's a lot of people out there in the community doing great things to help, but uh, man, we have to do something that can help out some of our veterans that are really hurting and, and all of the suicides and, you know, pick up the phone, stop by. And actually I read a LinkedIn post the other day. Someone said, Hey, don't tell people to call or text or email, like just stop by and say, Hey, I'm here. What can I do to help you? So we have to, we have to be more proactive and we have to, to wrap our arms around our veterans. You know, they did everything for us and they didn't turn their back. So we can't turn our back on them. I think it, I think it goes more to a point with you because of what you're doing now with the medal of honor museum. Um, you can't ever kind of step away. You don't ever get to take a break from that military service because what you guys are doing is honoring that and taking those legacies and stories forward. And that's a super important thing with the museum and everything that we've talked about that you guys are going to do at the museum, everything that's going to be there and available to people, you're going to continue to hear those stories over and over. And that's why I kind of ask you about how you process through it, because I can't help to think, when you're still in that environment, which you very much are, and around these soldiers and around these stories, there's going to be trigger points for you where you're going to hear a story and think back to something that happened to you. And we have to make sure that guys like you stay strong for all the ones that are listening in, the ones that are trying to figure it out by looking at a guy like you that was around forever, that's still continuing the fight in what you're doing and going, Oh yeah, it does suck, but it does get better. There's a grind, but it does get better. And I think you would agree with that, that it does get better at some point. You just kind of have to figure out what that new mission and purpose is. And I think that's what we talk about a lot on this show is mission and purpose. Like get done what you need to get done. You can be a whole second person after you step away from that life. Yeah, for sure, man, for sure. Uh, and that's why I'm, I feel so fortunate about having this opportunity to to work at the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation is is to have that great mission and and purpose and uh, to be around the recipients. I tell a bunch of people all the time. Uh, a lot of my colleagues, you know, I spent 26, half, 26 and a half years in the military. I was only ever around one recipient, and that was Bob Howard, uh, Mac Vsog. You just heard all of this when we were talking with our <laughs> Mac Vsog. Uh, I buddy, did, but let people John. know. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I, I was only it, it's it's very rare. Like you just don't get a chance to see uh, and spend time with Medal of Honor recipients, and I think it's important uh, for people to have that opportunity and to spend some time because I would say there's a ninety nine point nine nine percent chance that if you ever get a chance to spend some time around a recipient or to read about a recipient or to hear about a recipient that you will be inspired because these are just some phenomenal people. And, and I think one thing that's interesting too is, you know, people are going to learn that these were ordinary people that did extraordinary things. And they're a lot just like us, you know, they have fears and they get hurt and they have pain and all these other type of things. Uh, these are ordinary people that did extraordinary things. They have fascinating stories. And I think that we can use their stories in our everyday lives because as humans, 
we all struggle, right? We all have issues. We all have problems. And it's how you deal with these things, uh, how you get through these things. And, and I think we can learn some valuable recipient, uh, valuable lessons from the recipients, uh, no doubt in my mind. All right, let's talk about the foundation, what the museum's going to be, and what it's going to mean to the veteran community and to the general population uh, that's out there that wants to see things like this. Yeah, yeah. So, so the foundation, the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation, it's it's a three pronged project. You know, there's going to be a museum and an institute, a leadership institute that's going to that's co-located in Arlington, Texas. That will be opening uh, early 2025. And then there's also the third part of the project is a monument, uh, a national monument for Medal of Honor recipients that will be built in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. That's probably going to be 2026. So, yeah, we're really excited about it for the for the Institute, the, the education piece. You know, there's three centers of, of impact at the Institute. There's a, a center of character excellence. Uh, there's a center of leadership and action and then the center of uh, elevating honor. So we have the youth, we have adult, uh, we have like a think tank that will all be covered there. Uh, the museum. Um, when you think of most museums, I think you probably think a little boring or you know, it's going to be like a history lesson. And, uh, you know, we do have some tough content that we're going to cover. We realize that, but, you know, I think probably most people would maybe think it's going to be more of like a chronological type of museum. Like you, you walk into the exhibit deck and you start with the civil war because the first medals of honor were awarded in 1863, uh, during the civil war. And then you're going to start from the Civil War and then you're going to walk around, you know, a box or a circle. And then you're going to end up at GWAT with the Medal of Honor recipients from Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but that's not what we're going to be. We're not going to be a chronological uh, museum. We're going to be more of a biography museum, stories, uh, these great rich stories of uh, these recipients and and the values uh, that are embodied in these Medal of Honor recipients. And we talk about six, courage, sacrifice, commitment, integrity, citizenship, patriotism, and and how we're sharing those values uh, with, with the, the folks that are going to be visiting and how important those things are. And, and, and one of the recipients that I talk uh, about probably more than any other master sergeant Roy Benavidez, Mac B. Sog uh, from 1968. You know, this man's life, the way he grew up and the problems that he had to overcome. You know, he was a poor student. He was an orphan. He was discriminated against because he was, you know, Indian, Mexican, you know, heritage. You know, his time, it, the man still loved his country and wanted to serve. He wanted to serve others. And, uh, he was injured so so uh, severely. They said he would never walk again. He taught himself to walk. He ended up. Uh, Didn't you say he threw himself out of the bed onto the floor so he would? That was that was our friend John. Was that Spider John? <laughs> that was John. Uh, but yeah, he did. I I read. Uh, actually, I have it over my shoulder there. You can see. I have the book Legend where it talks about his recovery, where you know he was sneaking out of bed and and uh throwing himself on the floor and out of the chairs so he could you know force force himself to learn to walk but uh the power of this man and his mental strength just off the charts but 
you know, ended up going through special forces training and doing another uh, tour in Vietnam. And, you know, May of 68 is when his Medal of Honor action was where he went in with, with basically nothing. I think he went in with like a, a, a bag and like a K bar. He didn't even have his weapon. And it was basically a, a NBA regiment, 700 some people against 12 guys, just an absolute hero, the things that he endured. And, and, and a lot of the things about Roy too, were the things that he, that he did after his action uh, with the talking to the schools and educating and things like that, just a, a remarkable human being. And, and I can't wait to share uh, our museum shares the stories uh, of his action and and the things that he did in his life. I think it will definitely uh, be inspiring. When do you guys open and what can people expect other than what we've talked about where it's not really going to be, uh, it's not going to be your normal museum. I know we've talked about how you're going to set it up and it's going to be the stories, but what can people expect when they get there? Because if you've seen the pictures like you send to me every week of the construction and stuff, it does not look like what you think this kind of museum would be about. You think it would be very rigid, but it's very flowing. It's a beautiful museum. Uh, what can people expect when they see it, when it opens and when does it open? Yeah, the architecture is great. I mean, it's, it's, it's going to like the symbology behind the building and, and the meaning of things and the mega columns, you know, we have five mega columns that represent each branch of service that, uh, that we have a medal honor recipient from. And I know that we have six branches of service now, but uh, our Space Force branch, uh, we don't have a medal of honor recipient from our Space Force branch, but there's a lot of symbology in the, in the building and the meaning and, uh, the museum is scheduled to open in early uh, 2025, and we're right here in Arlington, Texas, uh, right beside AT&T Stadium, uh, right beside Globe Life Field, right beside Choctaw Stadium. It's going to be amazing. Uh, we're going to have some high-tech experiences. Uh, we're going to have virtual reality where you'll be able to communicate with a hologram of a Medal of Honor recipient, say uh, General Major General Pat Brady. Helicopter pilot, Medal of Honor recipient from Vietnam, just did some, I mean, just heroic, heroic things when when he was getting uh, getting guys out. But, you know, you have a hologram of General Brady and you can ask him questions where he's from, his favorite foods, what it means for him to serve. I mean, all of these different types of things. I think that'll be very engaging. Uh, but we're, we're going to have a high-tech experience, uh, lots of high-tech experiences, lots of event space. Uh, just a place for people to reflect and be inspired and, and hopefully uh, learn. Uh, I mean, these are, uh, these are American heroes that have preserved our freedom and democracy. Uh, just, you know, it's amazing. And I think for our veteran community, you know, our, our Medal of Honor recipients, you know, they represent all of us. You know, they represent all of the military. They come from us, which in turn, they represent all of Americans because they come from America. They represent Americans from all the different states. So I think there's a lot of meaning in that. Just a great place uh, to be inspired in a family-friendly environment uh, where you want to take your, your friends and family and, and try to learn some of those values and how you can apply those values in your life. You know, maybe you don't have to pick up a rifle and go head to head with Al Qaeda, 
but you can learn a little bit about, hey, you know what? Uh, I have someone that's that's sick in my family and, and I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to help take care of them. That takes courage to do that. That takes commitment. I, I'm going to do the right thing or, hey, this kid is getting bullied in school. What can I do to to prevent that? You know, there's things that we can learn these lessons and apply them in our life. All right. So where can people help out and where can they find you social media wise? Where can they uh, find out about the museum, about the foundation, where can they find that on social media? Sure. Yeah. I think the website's listed here. You can go to uh, www.mohmuseum.org. We have a ton of things on, on our webpage. Uh, you can follow us on all the social medias. Unfortunately, I'm not on all of those different social medias, Instagram, Facebook, and all that, but, uh, but I believe we have a great, uh, great showing on all the different social medias. We're also on LinkedIn. So please, please follow us, go to our website. Uh, we're still fundraising. We still need money. So if you want to donate or if you know anyone that wants to donate, uh, send them, send them our way, send them my way. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. There's not a lot of Daryl Lutz out there running around on LinkedIn. Uh, so you can find me fairly easy. If you want to receive the weekly updates, I send them out every Wednesday. Uh, it's a pretty cool update. This Wednesday's update is going to be super, super cool. I'm not even going to, I'm not even going to spoil it, but uh, it's okay. going to be a really great update. But, uh, but yeah, find me, uh, send me an email. I'll get you added to the list and, uh, and yeah, we'll go from there. Let's stay connected. Daryl, this has been an amazing conversation. You have an amazing story. I'm so glad that you're finally stepping out there and, and putting that story out. I know that before you've even volunteered a bunch of people to speak, maybe on your behalf, not on your behalf, but to tell their story and you kind of play in the background. Uh, so I'm so happy that you're doing it now. Uh, and for people that are listening, watching, there's a possibility that there is going to be two errors of Green Beret sitting down and talking to each other about their experiences and about the similarities and the differences on a further episode of this podcast. So we're, we're looking forward to that. We're working out the details. He mentioned that we had a phone call yesterday. We're trying to set up those details. So we're, we're very happy about that. Now, you know where you can find Daryl. You know where you can find out about the museum, the foundation. If you guys want to find more about me, you know you can always find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. Now the one-stop shop, it's dtdpodcast.net. You want to see more pictures of Daryl and what we were talking about, some of his friends, some of the operations, it's going to be there on his episode page. You can also find the audio and the video of both these on his episode page. That's dtdpodcast.net, probably the greatest website that's ever been built. This week, we want to welcome our brand new sponsor, my friend Mac at Mac Belts. We all know that nothing stands up to wear and tear like a good leather belt. If you're looking for the toughest leather belt on earth, then you've come to the right place, Mac Belts. They're all handcrafted in the USA by veterans who are serious about their craft. Now we all know Mac served in special operations and we know how important it was to have reliable equipment that could withstand tough conditions. That's what he designed here. Each belt is handmade with thick full grain leather 
detailed stitching to keep the belt rugged and lasting for years. I have two of them. They're absolutely fantastic. Now let's talk about the steel hardware. It won't bend or break under pressure. But the reason why Mac belts are even more special is because with every purchase, a portion of the proceeds go to help military service members and transitioning service members. But we have something new, the buckle from Mac belt. The mission, to design the toughest belt buckle on earth. And they did it. Their team is pleased to introduce a finished product with attention to detail that's unmatched. Its design is like no other thing that exists on the planet. It holds up to everything. They've achieved mission success and reinvented the belt buckle along the way. It's made in the USA by USA Built Machines and other veterans. It's expertly engineered to combine modern precision and rugged use. Look for it on MacBelts.com where you can pick up both your belt and your buckle. Don't forget to stop by Police Coffee at PoliceCoffee.com. You know they're an officer-owned business. They're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends and shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who knows what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause for my side of the fence. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So if you're looking for a new flavor, One Ranger is a great one. Texas Pecan, I know, Daryl, that you'll probably love that. You can find it at policecoffee.com. And when you go there, DJK10 will give you 10% off your order. Do not forget our sponsors. That's what keeps this show going. Please go and help them out. Mac Belt's our newest and Police Coffee, who's been around from the beginning. We'll catch you guys on the next one. That's Daryl. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll see you later. Bye.